Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we're talking about spirituality, and before those who say they are the non-believers turn off the show, I urge you to hang out with us a little bit longer and listen to what we're talking about. We're talking about the evolution of spirituality and the evolution of practice of spirituality in a way that is comfortable for all easily embraceable, and allows one to get connected to source, however one defines that source. And my first guest is Amy Edelstein. She's an educator, author, and public speaker. She's a powerful communicator of ideas and beliefs that can help transform ourselves and the culture we live in. She is the founder of the nonprofit organization Inner Strength. Inner Strength Foundation, which now works with over 800 inner city adolescents, teaching mindfulness and a developmental perspective. Amy also co-founded Emergence Education with her husband, who is a philosopher and spiritual teacher, Jeff Carrera. They produce transformational program and publications for an international audience, ordained the first interfaith minister of evolutionary spirituality and named its wisdom chair by the American Council of Interfaith Churches. Amy is also the author of several books. When not writing or teaching, Amy loves walking the streets of Philadelphia, contemplating cultural cultural transformation inspired by the spirit of our nation's early visionaries. Welcome, Amy. I am excited to talk with you. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yes, this is this is great because so many people um, speak about loneliness, separation, disconnection from themselves and the lives 
that they think that they should be living. And in my practice, when I see clients like this, I always check in with them about spiritual practice. And oftentimes they're like, they squint, they shrivel their nose. It's like, mm, well, no, I don't really go there. Um, I don't really want to go to church or where, where, wherever that building or place is. And I think this opens the conversation for what it is that you do and, 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 and the goodness that you are spreading. That's a great place to start. Lisa, I'm really glad you brought that up. Alienation and a sense of disconnect, not being able to find one's own community, not feeling a support network, not even knowing where to begin to look, is prevalent in all sectors of society and all age groups in 2016. There are two ways to understand that. And there are many ways to address that. And a lot of the work that I do is to help people connect and find that sense of home and that sense of community. We need that. We're social creatures. Humans are social creatures. But one way to understand why we feel such a sense of alienation is to look at the last 800 years of cultural development, how we moved from very prescribed lives in the 1400s where we knew what village we'd live in, what church we'd go to, what we'd believe, who we would marry, what profession we'd go into. Our lives would be mapped out for us. And there was a lot of security, a lot of bonding, and a lot of sense of belonging in that. As we developed and complexified culturally, we gained a sense of individuation, I can follow my own truth. I can look for my own dream. I have creative aspirations that nobody else does. That's exciting. I can travel. I can explore different perspectives and cultures and paths and worldviews and professions. We have a lot of social mobility. So that's beautiful. We've seen a flourishing of our human creativity. But we've lost that sense of connectedness and support. So now our task in our generation and the generation who are maturing now is to start building those social structures that connect us again, but at the level of creativity and individuation where we're at. So it's a very exciting time, so long as we understand that that separation and, and loss of support that we feel is just one of the byproducts of the development and the freedoms we have. And it's our task to start building new connections. And I'm sure you're seeing that on the West Coast. On the East Coast, I'm in a, a big urban uh, area in Philadelphia, and I'm seeing more and more neighborhood associations, um, small businesses that create community, coffee shops that create community, co-working spaces that create community, alternative practice communities that give spiritual support. So I'm seeing this movement and establishment of new cultural structures to respond to that need for connection. I see the same thing here. I, I concur. You know, I was just reading an article uh, this morning on micro-neighborhoods you know, which may only be two square blocks, 
but people who are living in larger cities and who are feeling this sense of disconnection that you're that you're speaking of are now consciously creating these small little neighborhoods where you have that coffee shop where people can come and commune maybe you have a community garden where people can come and get you know dirt under their nails and and talk or a, a, a local cafe where people come together or a music spot or a park and um, I think this is very, very prevalent. And, and you're doing this. One of the ways you're spearheading your initiative is through touching our youth. That's right. I, I worked primarily with adults. I began my own mindfulness practice in 1982. I did my first three-month mindfulness retreat in 1985. So I've been at it a long time. I've done a lot of different types of meditation practice, and then working with uh, transformative education models. When I came to the to Philadelphia, which was only three years ago, I felt like I wanted to do something that really took the leading transformational tools that worked for me and that I've seen work for other people and see how to integrate them into the city. And I had never worked in high schools before. I now have a program that is in seven high schools, reaching 800 students this year and 1,200 next year. I have a cadre of teachers who go in and teach. And it's a three-month program weekly where juniors and seniors who are generally from at-risk neighborhoods but who are college-bound, who are smart and motivated and and really uh, intent on uh, using their minds and 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 contributing to the world. Those are the magnet schools that we go into, and we work with them to learn how to access the depths of themselves. So that's another way that we feel connection and we respond to that sense of alienation, where the the students learn to practice mindfulness, evidence based mindfulness tools, so that they can calm and focus. But I really emphasize that sense of pursuit of the mystery, pursuit of the infinite, mm. the discovery of consciousness. And then we also look at that in a developmental perspective. So we look at cultural development. We look at the three hundred million year uh, influence of our brain's development on us. I love what you just said, the pursuit of mystery, you know, to inspire others to be curious, to inquire, to ask questions, to delve inside is pretty spectacular when these kids are not exposed to this. What's interesting about pursuing mystery with 16 and 17 year olds is that they have an innate curiosity. That age wants to learn, wants to discover, wants to take risks, wants to push the edges. And they'll push the edges, not just of risky behaviors and activities, but they'll push the edges of understanding how their brains work, how they work, how they communicate, what human nature is, what consciousness is. So pursuing mystery actually comes more naturally and easy, more easily to this age group than you might expect, regardless of background. I think it's just part of the growth process. 
This is fascinating. I, I have two teenagers. One's in college. One is in high school. And this concept of, you know, pushing the limit with the risky behaviors, I never thought of it in the context of pursuit of mystery. We are going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with Amy Edelstein to learn more about the Inner Strength Foundation. Please visit www.innerstrengthfoundation.net. On Facebook, the page is Amy Edelstein.educator. And on Twitter, the handle is at Amy Edelstein. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we're talking about the development of inner strength, the pursuit of mystery, the um, instigation of curiosity in the minds of our youth, and you know what? Even in ourselves. Amy Edelstein is my guest. She's an educator, author, and public speaker. She is the founder of the non Profit Inner Strength Foundation and is also an interfaith minister of evolutionary spirituality. Amy, before the break, we were talking about, oh, I was mentioning my two, two, two teenagers and the work that you were doing, are doing with at-risk youth and how the concept of the pursuit of mystery plays into this experimentation that comes naturally to the mind of a young, young adult. I have a couple responses, which I think might help you understand your own teenagers, and it might help your teenagers understand you, which is uh, some of the things that I teach uh, in the schools. 
if you think back to our early caveman, cavewoman history, our parents' generation was, had a lifespan of about 25 years. When we were hitting 15 and 16, we needed to develop all of the skills to be able to manage the tribe, fend off the saber-toothed tigers, and be adults. So that, um, that led us to need to take risks, to go beyond our comfort zone. Our parents weren't going to be there. We had to push the edge, test our abilities, develop courage. Um, and that's one of the reasons why teenagers' brains are coded to pursue and prefer risk. Now, the way that our brains do that is they, they, the levels of, com- of um, some of the neurotransmitters that create comfort for us shift. So the baseline level for teenagers is different than in babies and in adults, and the way that uh, that, base, that drop in the baseline tricks us is it tricks us, teenagers to take risks in order to feel like they are okay. It's different when you're an adult. So we are literally being programmed by our brains. And the other thing that the teenagers want to do at that age, if we go back to our cave person um, history, is they need to bond with each other because those are going to be their supporters or their adversaries when they um, assume the leadership of the tribe. And that's one way to understand an evolutionary perspective on teen risk-taking now. Now, of course, we're very sophisticated, but that's 50,000 years of conditioning. We don't just get over Mm -hmm. that with the advent of the iPhone. True, 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 true. Let's talk a little bit about um, how your program differs from other teen mindfulness trainings. The way it differs has a lot to do with the evolutionary perspective we were just talking about, where the students really cultivate the skills to see their experience in context. So, you know, many of the, the students in the schools that uh, my team works with are dealing with a lot of racial issues. They're dealing with economic disparity. They're dealing with a future that doesn't look so bright. And how are they going to understand that without just personalizing it and feeling like, oh, well, I'm just going to ignore those influences on myself and rise up anyway, which puts an unfair pressure on them. Or they're going to feel burdened because they feel like they're just a single individual and there's no way they'll be able to respond to the challenges. So putting it in context, seeing these big movements of history helps them, and and also highlighting some of the role models who've really uh, brought about cultural change, helps them feel very optimistic and see a way through. And then the other part that I think differs is I really do emphasize what we were talking about before, the mystery and the depth perspective. It is a secular program, and I have students of all religions. I have Muslims, I have Christians, I have Jews, I have Buddhists, I have Hindus. We have a lot of immigrants in our classes, so we really have all different. I have some, you know, Bon religion and some, um, you know, uh, Indonesian pagan religions in my classes. So I really have to be very careful that our program honors their faith traditions, but also presents them with a way to really explore consciousness and not to shy Uh, away from depth. 
and, and I and I and I really hear what you're saying, and I see the beauty in this also by bringing our awareness to our place in the context of time. You know that we we begin to see ourselves as part of a bigger picture by pointing out the storyline, the timeline, the, the the evolution that we as humans have gone through. That's right. And that's a common story. It's a universal story. It's one that we don't understand its influence on, on us very well. And it's one that's really thrilling to start um, excavating because we're excavating layers of ourselves. I like to tell my teens that we're becoming archaeologists of ourselves. So we're seeing influences from all these different eras. And that just shows what a fascinating interconnected cosmos we live in and how when, when you see how interconnected you are, in an essential way you also get a visceral sense of how one we are, how interdependent, mm-hmm. how unified we are, no matter where you think you are on the inside or the outside of any particular group or even any particular dominant species, we really are deeply entwined and that's a beautiful thing and that brings a sense of harmony and the other thing that the inner strength teen program works to do is really develop qualities of empathy compassion and altruism and your your show is about happiness and that that sense of altruistic motive and that sense of connectedness makes kids happy it really really does they don't think it's goofy they really they don't look down on it. They're not too hip for it. They really love it. I love what you just said. They're not too hip for it. It, as, <laughs> it make it, it it brings a chuckle to my to my to myself because I I look at my own kids, these two teens, and I and I don't know if you have teens yourself or your kids are older. Or you even have kids, but the, the in teenage years, it's all about the self. You know how it how it everything affects us. That we are the center of the world, and the world is just you know revolving around us. And this work that you're doing is so beautifully puts it into perspective as a gentle wake up call. Right, and they it also the the way they're going to feel better is by caring and feeling connected. So yeah. it works to that 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 focus on the self which definitely is a trait of adolescence and and an important one in terms of human development. But when they realize that caring and expanding their capacity to care and learning tools to do that, it makes them happier. It makes them calmer. It makes them feel less alone. It makes them feel excited. It makes them feel creative. And that's a really good thing. I love what you just said. Increase the capacity to care. That matters. Yeah. And it's a muscle, like everything else. So yeah. the exercises that we practice in the Inner Strength Team Program it, are practices that increase that capacity to care. And what's fascinating is they do tell me stories. They'll come back or I'll see them after summer break and they'll tell me stories about how this really helped, how they were really mad about something and they went to the park and they just sat down and and they breathed or they were quiet or they did one of the the um, compassion meditations 
and they responded to the situation differently, and they felt so much better about themselves, and they felt so much stronger, and the situation turned out better than they expected. And this also comes from, like, big guys who are really express a lot of disinterest in class, and then I see them later, and they tell me they've really been working with it. So it's not just the creative types that respond to this. I, I think that, that it's, it is a human longing for goodness, and I, mm. I do think that's part of our innate human nature. What are a couple success stories, or even just one that comes to mind, um, well, I had, I had one student who um, was a junior in high school, being very smart and very serious, a little bit over-serious, really hard on himself, um, being raised by his grandmother. I think his father is incarcerated. The mother's not in the picture. I'm not completely sure why, um, but... I can imagine. I can fill in the blanks, as I'm sure your listeners can. And he also, when he was a junior, came out that he was gay, which is a huge deal for an African-American teen. Mm-hmm. And he fell in love with someone in his class. It was one of those first romances. And then the romance ended. He got rejected. And he was devastated. Now, that those all those factors put together are... Very, it, there's a very high incidence of suicide and suicide ideation among teens with those factors. Right. And what happened was over the summer, he really started doing his meditation practice. And this year he's having a beautiful year. He got a full scholarship to a very, very competitive liberal arts, small liberal arts, private liberal arts college on the East Coast. He's going into uh, law, criminal justice, and he's, he talks a lot about how, you know, what the mindfulness and the inner strength program has taught him is to be objective about his thoughts to be able to see them for what they are, not trying to repress them or control them, but be able to see them and then choose what he's going to respond to and that the way he chooses how to respond is going to have a positive or negative impact on those around him and he'd prefer to have a positive impact. Oh, I love this. This is hearing this it warms my heart. We are out of time and I want to direct our listeners over to your website and your contact places. The website is www.innerstrengthfoundation.net. On Facebook, your page is Amy Edelstein.educator. And on Twitter, the handle is at Amy Edelstein. Amy, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the beautiful work you do, for sharing your heart with us and I'm I'm touched and smiling. I'm grinning from ear to ear, um, and I'm in pursuit of mystery. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. We are going to take a break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Here come the tunes. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. 
Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. We're talking about developing inner and outer strength for all, emotional and physical fitness. My next guest, Rupa Mehta, is a teacher, entrepreneur, author, and fitness expert. Her book, The Nalini Method, Seven Workouts for Seven Moods, has helped thousands of adults and youth become healthier individuals. She is the founder of Nalini Method and Nalini Kids, both based on Rupa's wellness philosophy that true health is achieved by being both emotionally and physically fit. Welcome, Rupa. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Let's talk about emotional weight. And when we talk about emotional fitness and how it affects our physical fitness. Well, the one thing that I think is kind of, I guess, an alarming fact for me is when I I looked up the dictionary definition of weight, um, and it said it was the heaviness of a person or thing, and it didn't, you know, acknowledge that it was physical weight specifically, and I just think that that's been our society's interpretation, that it's, you know, associated to pounds or getting on a scale and measuring our heaviness that way, and so I think that we haven't done a very good job of coming up with tangible I um I don't know tangible assessment of weight. And so I attempt to do that with emotional weight through the weight of words. So the idea that the words you digest into your body just like food you digest can weigh you down or lift you up. You know and that's so true. I mean when you think about someone who um is holding on to a lot of weight or a lot of layers you know, and you ask them, well, you know, what is that about? Because everybody knows how to lose weight. I mean, there's a news flash here that is not not really a news flash. We all know what to do if we want to lose weight. And yet it becomes very challenging and elusive for a lot of us to do so. So it has to tie into the emotional process. And I think I think a lot of times with you know, the movement of our body, we can understand that, you know, we start moving our body, the dopamine, we start to feel better. But it's like the emotional weight process, we don't know how to move our thoughts so easily. And so sometimes you need that low hanging fruit, like the what's the one thing I can do without feeling like I need to be horizontal in my therapist's office chair for hours, or I need to go on a retreat. Like what's like something that's a manageable thing that it can do every day that 
that is like a run, that is like a stretch. And I think that that's kind of the challenge of coming up with a very practical, emotional weight plan, which I've, I've tried to do, especially in the book. So let's talk about, maybe we can just run through the seven moods in the book. In the Nalini Method, Seven Workouts for Seven Moods, you break this down into these seven categories. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think, you know, I've been teaching fitness for about 17 years now, and these were the most common moods that came up that either incentivized people to work out or blocked people from working out. So there's the anger workout, energy, stress, chill, happiness, doubt, and anxiety. And so the workouts are, you know, 20 to 25 minute routines that have an emotional and physical component. And the workout goal is to help you move your mind and body in a very practical, connected way. So with this book, you are helping people do a psychophysio workout. Yes. And I I think that's a great way to put it because I think that even by even by just choosing the workout, you're already making an emotional investment. You know, like, am I angry or am I filled with anxiety? Am I stressed or anxious? And I think that those choices already kind of put you in that right frame of mind to accept your mood, own your mood, and kind of hopefully move and channel it in the way you see fit. Not to categorize it as positive or negative, just really just saying, you know, I feel this way and how is it manifesting in my physical body? You know, it's, it's like this, when I teach the kids, it's very much like if I can name it, I can tame it. So if I, if I can name my angry mood and see what, it, what happens in my body, then I'm able to manage it. You know, some people cry when they get angry. Some people get red in the face. Some people yell. Just knowing who you are and how your moods manifest physically is very insightful into doing a workout that can match that mood then. I love what you just said. If we can name it, we can tame it. You know, if we can name those emotions that are percolating within us, we can learn to regulate them. We can learn to work with them because these emotions, I mean, especially the ones that we have a negative connotation of anger, for example, which, you know, women in general are not, um, are trained to try and suppress anger, that it's not becoming, that it's not feminine, that it's not uh, very womanly to be angry. When in fact, anger is a perfectly healthy, normal emotion. And in fact, it's useful. Yes, very much so. I mean, I think like in any given day, I think I've gone through all seven moods. plus <laughs> So, I mean, I think that, you know, teaching the kids has definitely been um, eye-opening for me because making it so simple for them. And I think the simplest way I've ever put it to a child is that the anger isn't bad. It's just a clue in your body. And we're working like detectives every day. And so it's, it's a clue in your body that maybe you need to move more, or maybe you need to have a conversation that you, you, you're scared of having, or maybe you need to breathe more. But it's just, it's just a clue, just like happiness is a clue of something, just like stress is a clue. And I think that that can be very powerful to think of your moods in that way, and that you, you're just kind of constantly trying to figure out your life and kind of manage and navigate your day. And if you go in with that mindset, I think it can already lift the emotional weight of these sometimes heavy emotions off. You talk about the void that you found in the fitness world, which um, from what I'm hearing is really how the emotional component, the psychological component ties into the our physiology and how we can perhaps motivate ourselves to get moving for better emotional well-being or emotional fitness. 
Yes, I think that a lot of times, you know, it's like, uh, I, I need to lose 100 pounds, or I need to just be the happiest person in the world. I mean, these are kind of very big, big, sometimes unattainable goals. And I think that to have a practical way to chip away at yourself every day, you know, I think of, I think like we brush our teeth every day, like no questions asked. We've like, you know, trained our brain that that is something that we should do every day. I think that we as a fitness kind of model should introduce emotional workouts in that same way, like little things that we can do every day that kind of can keep us in check. And I think that we could do a better job of giving a realistic goal rather than I think it's a lot of pressure to feel like I have to be, you know, high on life every single day. It's a lot. That's that's too much to take on. Um, you know, and even me as a fitness instructor, I've been teaching for this long, but I don't feel motivated to work out all the time. Uh, like, in, even though I'm teaching someone in my class, like maybe I just want to be lazier and I don't feel the incentive to go to the gym or I'm not in the mood. So, you know, what do you do to overall keep yourself in balance again? I think it is kind of owning up to those different emotions. And we're talking about em emotional intelligence and how it applies to our physical fitness. I mean, that's what I'm really hearing you say. Yes. No, and I think it goes back to the point earlier, if you name it, you can tame it. Like, you know, thinking of yourself as a subject that you need to figure out. You know, if, I mean, I see the passion um, more, more heightened in the physical area. Like I know how many calories I take in and out. I know my, my physical consumption of food. I know exactly what exercises I'm doing. But if we could kind of take that same mindset towards our emotional lives, um, it, they become very manageable. It's not as difficult as we might think, you know, you, you think like, I don't know, I don't remember the time when a scale didn't exist and a diet didn't exist and your, you know, the treadmill didn't exist. But then all of a sudden now we have like these tools that are very accessible. And I think that that's what we, we should aim for in the emotional direction. And if they can both be combined, then, then I think that's even more powerful. I agree. And you talk about um, in your book, how one can be physically fit and emotionally obese. Love that. Well, yes, I think that, you know, the most common saying I hear in class is like, I feel fat, I look fat, you know, the, the word fat is used a lot in fitness. And then, you know, attempting to approach that through just the physical means um, has been very interesting for me, because I see a lot of thin clients who have beautiful bodies, strong in shape who feel fat still. So, you know, obviously it's something, it could be something else. And I see more physically heavier clients who might, you know, technically be overweight on a scale according to their doctor, but they seem light as a feather, you know? And so I think the emotional weight is real and that we all experience that and we can see and sense it on ourselves and when we just meet new people. I mean, you can sense a certain energy and aura of someone and feel their emotional weight. In your book, The Nalini Method, Seven Workouts for Seven Moods, your approach is this emotional, intelligent one. What are the kinds of workouts that you prescribe? I think the biggest thing overall in all the chapters you'll see is that there's a mantra associated to each chapter um, where 
you're forced to think about the dictionary definition of a word and your own personal interpretation. So let's say, for example, and I'll use this example as it's appropriate for your podcast and who you are, the word happiness, you know, <laughs> if it, so the happiness workout, like if you look it up in the dictionary, it says, you know, a state of contentment, a pleasurable experience. And so like, I know my own personal definition of happiness is embracing the control you have over your state of mind. Um, and so that's a different interpretation of happiness. And that so that when I am maybe a little tearied up or not feeling like I want to, you know, skip around all day, that's I can still be happy. And so I think it's really zeroing in on what do these emotions feel to you? Like, what is your definition of anger? What is your personal definition of stress? Because a lot of times we end up in situations or problems because we think we're operating on the same dictionary, but we're not, you know, mm -hmm. like I might have a view of friendship that's different than your view of friendship. Like, so what's your dictionary definition? I think it's something as simple as that can be illuminating for your emotional life. Oh, I agree. And I think this is a wonderful way to approach our physical fitness as well as emotional fitness. We're going to take a break and I want to give our listeners some information where they can find you and the book. Once again, um, Rupa Mehta's book is The Nalini Method, Seven Workouts for Seven Moods. You can learn more about her at nalinimethod.com and nalinikids.org. On Facebook, the page is Nalini Method, and on Twitter, that handle is at Nalini Method. Here come the tunes. We will be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking with Rupa Meta. She is the developer of the Nalini Method, she, or creator of the Nalini Method. She's also the author of the Nalini Method, Seven Workouts for Seven Moods. And once again, we're talking about developing inner and outer strength for all. And that means emotional as well as physical fitness. So Rupa, prior to the break, we were talking about these workouts that match our moods or the desired feeling that we either want to have or feeling that we are managing that we wish to 
better regulate. Let's talk a little bit about what Nalini means and how it relates to what you've developed. So um, Nalini is my mom's name. Her name is Nalini Mehta. And she is just the healthiest person I've ever met. You know, she just um, has a resiliency and accumulated wisdom, a vibrancy about her that I always look up to growing up. And when I moved to New York and I was more introduced, I'm from Virginia and I came to New York and I was introduced to fitness in like full effect. I started running six miles a day, eating egg whites every day, really was introduced to health in a different way. Um, the observation of feeling like my mom is the healthiest person um, still remained with me. So even though she wasn't technically, you know, having a six pack and in boot camp classes, I felt <laughs> that she, she definitely was my image of health. And so I think that's really where the, uh, the concept of emotional weight was really born in that observation and then meeting clients over the years that, you know, technically looked skinny, but felt overweight and vice versa. Um, and then her name actually means Lotus, which is, you know, a very um, common symbol for spiritual awakening. And, you know, the idea that this lotus has all this muck and stuff that it's born in the mud and then slowly comes up through the light and faces all these struggles and finds its light and shines, I think is is very descriptive of an emotional journey that most of us end up taking. You know, it's all relative, everyone's problems or, or solutions in their own lives, but everyone does end up on some type of emotional journey like the lotus. It, indeed we do. That That is a fact. And the, the Nalini method itself which you've described, you know, kind of peripherally with these workouts involves what? Because it's, it's quite physical, not as, at times rigorous, but talk a little bit about one, what one would encounter in a Nalini class. So my, my studio class is like your a typical bar class with uh, the thing that makes it, I guess, very unique is the amount of personal attention. So um, there are workouts that are very individualized to your body, your modifications, your injuries, and the actual workouts itself are a combination of ballet bar, Pilates, yoga, strength training. Um, and what makes the, the method unique is that emotional and physical tie-in done in a very individualized way. And then in, um, in the book, you are teaching people how to adapt this mm. to themselves, to their own workouts. Yes. So there are 20 to 25 minute routines that all you need is a yoga mat. And it's definitely challenging. You know, they're intense classes geared towards transforming your body physically. Um, I break down the positions very clearly. You know, I'm not one who would necessarily go into a store and be like the bookstore and be like, oh my God, I can't wait to see what's on the fitness shelf. It's not, you know, it's not like, you know, your normal go-to thing. And so I wanted to make sure that I wrote a book that I myself would read and do workouts from. And what's great about the book is that if you open up kind of like, let's say the anger chapter, there's one page that has the entire workout laid out with the hopes that you can memorize it later. And then each each position is broken down very specifically. And then each workout has a story or a mantra um, associated to it that will help you kind of emotionally when you're in that state of mind to think of your emotional life as it relates to your physical workout. Rupa, I know that you've been working with kids for many years, that you have immersed yourself in at-risk communities to help young kids fall in love with physical exercise, to see the relationship between having a healthy body and a healthy mind 
and that you've developed Nalini Kids, and I want to learn more and share more about what you're doing with kids. Wow, I I could talk on and on about Nalini Kids. I, I think what makes the program very unique is that a lot of times, like we know the importance of physical and emotional fitness for adults, and we want to translate that. To, to kids, but we just don't know when and where, you know, usually programs like this are reserved for after school or if you have the budget or the means to, you know, sign your kids up for class or before school. And so what's unique about the program is that we figured out a way to introduce it during the school day. So we train your existing science, math, chorus, PE teachers on an emotional and physical workout. So take, for example, emotional weight. In a science class, the teachers would go over your fight or flight response and your ability to handle stress. And then maybe you see a diagram of your body and you have to X out parts of your body that feel heavy. In a math class, maybe you weigh yourself emotionally every day for a month and then you learn about pie charting or graphing. You know, I have one more example, engineering. You know, you would learn how to code a search engine and just like in coding a search engine, you would think about your life that way and all the experiences and what would be the keywords that you would kind of, um, uh, you know, isolate that can you could then reflect on. And so students begin to see their emotional lives and their academic lives actually link up. And it's almost like you're proving emotional intelligence to yourself. And then you do a one word workout. So maybe you would do the angry workout or the presence workout or um, the commit workout. And what do those words mean to you? And so it's been really great to see how much it's grown because it's so well received because every school and every teacher can really customize it to their strengths and their words and their their specialty in the room. This is fantastic. What I love about this is that you are offering a, a systematic approach. So it can be covered, the, um, the content can be covered in different ways relating to different disciplines. And what you end up is with a very holistic, um, well-rounded individual. A hundred percent. I mean, I, you know, we, Ironically, you know, you think of a wellness program, you wouldn't necessarily think of STEM, you know, which is the big um, push by the federal government, science, technology, engineering, math. We are a STEM program. Yes. And the fact that we are that, I think um, it gives it a validity in a different way. It allows, you know, typically students would think about coding robots, but now they're thinking about coding their emotions. You know, my, my goal with this program is to make emotional and physical intelligence academically viral. And, you know, you need an army of people to do that. And the fact that we have these great relationships with the Department of Education, with the STEM initiative, allows for this big big goal to hopefully become a reality. Well, I don't see why it it, it won't be, because this is what you're what you're offering is is just sound. I mean, it's it's for our health, for the well-being of our kids, for future generations and growing children up who are just going to be healthier emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, and mentally. And I think a lot of times, you know, being able to relate your emotional life, like, you know, we don't doubt that two plus two equals four. And that was like, you know, told to us every day growing up, we take math classes, but, you know, we don't really have a subject in schools that allows us to connect in this way. And I I think oftentimes of like when computers were introduced, we then added a computer class. And I think there needs to be some type of class or outlet for this type of intelligence because it's so needed now, you know, because we're training kids for the jobs that we don't know 
will exist 10 years from now. So you have to train students on these soft skills, the communication, the connection, their ability to be their own teacher. And so that's what this program does, allows them to be their own teacher and then kind of teach the world whatever is going to be appropriate for that moment. And what I also hear that is um, uh, part of this, it's inherent in the programming, is teaching flexibility and resilience. Very much so. You know, I think... Whenever you work out physically, you you are sometimes humbled, right? You know, it's like you get in tune to your body. You try to make it one extra step, one extra push-up. And I think all that growth mindset then applies to your emotional lives. You know, a lot of times I, I meet students that might have been intimidated physically, but then they feel like, you know what, I'm emotionally strong. Maybe it could tie to the workout. And then I also see... The flip, you know, someone who's like, oh, I'm able to do push-ups now. Maybe I could approach, you know, feeling calmer after a fight or, or approaching my life in a different way and see what happens. So the, the connection between the two is made and the students experience it themselves and then they become their own teacher. We're almost out of time, but before we go, if we have any teachers listening or principals or concerned parents that want to bring the work to their schools... Um, is this a, cur- a curriculum that is that it's it's in use that I know, but this is something that um, it can be purchased as, as a full program as a curriculum for a school, correct? Yes, yes. it's a it, there's a training program and there's books associated to it, so it's a an elementary school program as well as a middle school program. I'll give you like just one quick example, like the elementary school program revolves around 10 books that the students read. So one book is called Mookie and Gorbit. Mookie is an ant that's way down by the world. Elephant is Gorbit. He's light as a feather. And they both teach each other how to lose weight because they both weigh 20,000 pounds. Then there's a curriculum around that. And that's uh, what the teachers engage in. Wonderful. Um, I want to give your contact information yes. once again. Yes. The book is The Nalini Method, Seven Workouts for Seven Moods. Moods. You can find Rupa Mehta's work at nalinimethod.com and nalinikids.org. On Facebook, that page is Nalini Method and on Twitter at Nalini Method. Thank you, Rupa. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Rupa Mehta and Amy Edelstein, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.